heaven in Christ alone those three simple words actually frame our entire lives and when we live in Christ alone even death cannot have victory over us and we thank you for the salvation that is ours in Christ alone and the difference it makes when we place our faith in him for all that he has accomplished on our behalf. And we thank you that as we continue to celebrate this morning and look into your word, that indeed all we say, all we do will bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus. And we thank you in his name. Amen. Hey, great. Nice to have you here this morning on this long holiday weekend. Hey, how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you feel? You lost an hour of sleep. Are you okay? Okay. No, you're not okay. All right. Um, I will do my best to keep you alive and awake this morning. How's that? Okay. As we talk about uh, the last of our series on the Ten Commandments. So this is, this is the final wrap-up of, of the Ten Commandments. And we've, you know, the last eight weeks or nine weeks, we've been going through this particular um, set of commandments. And uh, today I want to look at the first two. Now, if you've been part of the series, you know that we started at number 10. We went backwards and we went through the, uh, all, all of the personal ones. And then we're looking now at the ones that uh, pertain to God uh, specifically. And we're looking at the very first two um, of the commandments. And, uh, you know, in, in, in order to frame these proper, properly, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admit this. I'm going to admit that the way you view these first two commandments is going to make all the difference in your life. That what you decide about these two commandments is really going to frame your worldview, is really going to frame your, your understanding of God, is really going to frame the way you live your life. So it's a very, they're very important commandments to, to view and to understand. Um, and what I find very interesting is that if, if, we, were, if we were to go someplace and, and maybe in a mall where there's a lot of people, and we were to put a microphone up to, uh, up to a lot of people and ask them, can you recite any of the Ten Commandments? Most of them would probably, if, if they could recite any of them, are going to remember, um, do not steal, do not murder, do not, you know, the ones that pertain on, on the horizontal level. But the first four probably are going to be the most difficult. In fact, I would argue that the first two of the commandments are going to uh, be absolutely the ones that, that very few people would ever remember very few people would ever uh, uh, keep, keep at, at, at the forefront of these Ten Commandments. And yet, these two are what frame all the rest. Because whatever you decide about these commandments are going to uh, make all the others easy. Are going to make all the others manageable. Are going to make all the others fall into, into line and into place. So that's why these two are so, so very important. So I want to I begin reading um, at verse 2 of, of Exodus 20. And I'm going to go through this very, um, very methodically as we look at these passages. Because I want to un- unwrap them for you. Um, the whole of the Ten Commandments is introduced by this particular introduction. I am the Lord your God. Who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Now, I would, I would argue that, that as it pertains to the Ten Commandments, you cannot, you cannot ignore the 
um, introduction to these Ten Commandments. In fact, in, in, in Jewish circles, they actually include this as part of the first commandment. That this introduction is vitally important. And what's interesting about the introduction to the Ten Commandments is that it is a very personal introduction. And, and confirming something about God and the people that he has called his very own. That, you know, why is it that all around cultures uh, around the world, when we talk about religion, we talk about what are the rules to the particular religion? And everybody says, oh, to be part of this group or to be part of this faith, you have to follow these steps. You have to follow these, these rules, these rituals, these understanding of what it is that it, that it means to, to do. And I, and, I would, and I would argue that even in the Christian circles, we, we think that, that if we follow these, that this builds our relationship with God. But that's not necessarily the focus of these Ten Commandments. It's not necessarily the focus of this particular introduction. In fact, do you realize that God actually gave a commandment before this to the people of Israel? The very first set of instructions that God gave to the people that actually frames their entire existence. And if you, if, if you don't believe me, you need to go back to Exodus 12. Because back in Exodus 12, while they were still in the land of Egypt, God gave them this commandment. God gave them these instructions to have a meal together as a, as, as a group of Israelites. It's called the Passover meal. That back in Exodus 12, God instituted something first and foremost called the Passover. And it was what, what he established as a relational component of their living in faith with God. That the Passover is what saved them from the death angel as God brought the death angel into Egypt to liberate the people out of slavery and to bring them into the promised land. That that is the first institution that God did to the nation of Israel. That's why year after year they celebrate the Passover. That's why year after year the Exodus event is the salvation event for the Jewish people. It is what established the relationship with God and his people. So the Ten Commandments are not necessarily a criteria for a relationship with God. It is a confirmation of a relationship that is already established. It is a confirmation of a relationship that is already established. There's many times that we believe that people just need to keep the rules in order to get right with God. But if you don't have the relationship with God, the rules are empty. The ritual is empty. It's not, it's not going to do anything. What is interesting is God saved the people first and then said, based on what you've experienced with me, here are some things that you need to know to protect yourself, to guard yourself, to help yourself, to, to, to understand how the relationship with you and I should work. But very often it's myths and we're going back. And it's, and it's interesting that God institutes a meal for the people to celebrate what he's done with them. In the Exodus, you know, um, so this relational component to the Ten Commandments is often missed because we often think of, of the Ten Commandments simply as a set of rules. And if we follow these set of rules, we're OK. But but what's interesting is the very first two commandments confirm this relational component, you know, and it's not just about how we act towards each other. It's absolutely about the faith that we have with God and how we how we live that faith out. Here's here's the very first commandment that uh, most of us. Most of us know you must have, you must not have any other God but me. 
Now, we all know from the ancient Near East that, every, that, that, that you know, all the cultures, one of the, one of the unique things about the Jewish culture is that they celebrated and they worshipped one God and one God alone. All the other cultures had a plethora of gods, had a smorgasbord of gods. You know, if we were in the agricultural industry, you know, we celebrated the agricultural God. If we wanted to have a baby, we would worship the fertility God. If we wanted, you know, the sun God, if we wanted the weather to be better, better we would, you know, um, bring it to the sun God. All of those kinds of things. But, but it was so unique within that culture, within that worldview to have one one God and to have one God alone and not to have any other God. You know, this, this, this interesting kind of fusion of everything that all this creator and God says, you, I am manageable to all the things that you have in your life. You don't have to run here. You don't have to run there. That everything, everything in your life, I can take care of. I can manage. You don't have to run in every, every direction to every different God, to every different ritual, every different rite, that I alone can be God. That I alone can be God. And, this, and here's, here's the right that this protects. This protects God's right to exclusive allegiance and recognition. To exclusive allegiance and recognition. Is it not true? Is it not true? That even in the world that we live in, there are multiple gods. There are multiple things that we worship. There are multiple things that draw our attention and take away from our worship of God. That there are so many times that we want to look elsewhere for worship. And you know, this becomes the focal point of worship too. The focal point of worship is understanding that there's a one God and one God alone. And he deserves all of our praise, all of our, uh, all of our worship, all of our admiration. Now, this is, this is the easy one. This is the one that God stipulates over and above no other, no other God. Now, as we lean into this, we, we, we recognize that there's a second one that comes up to this, that you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. And I want to I deal with this because to make an idol, the way that is written in the Hebrew here, is to form something with your own hands and to, and to make it. You know, there's, there's a tendency to think that this is all about artistry, that this is all about shaping something. But in the ancient Near East, they used to, they used to on a regular basis, make all kinds of figures and then use those figures as something to be worshipped, something to be idolized, something you know, that they would carry. In fact, they used to think that it had magical powers. They used to think that it had its, some, some kind of, of, of blessing on the home, that if you put it on the mantle and if you worshipped it, it would protect the house. It would keep everything sane. It would keep everything, you know... Um, they would, they would bury things in the ground in order to bless the ground and all that kind of stuff. But God says that he has the right to his own identity in this, right? And, and, and this is the mistake. The mistake is, we, we hear all the time, icons. Iconography. Iconography. Great, thank you. Iconography. Thank you, Stan. <laughs> but you hear all the time about icons that they're bad and all that kind of. That's not necessarily true. 
You have to be very careful. You know, artist and artistry is a part of the creation. God is a creative God. Us being made in his image are allowed to be creative as well. The, the, the line that gets crossed is when that becomes an object for veneration, an object for worship. You know, to be artistic at all, you know, for many, many years has, has, been, has been sort of downplayed in the Christian world. But the reality is that God made us creative. If you look at all of look at the temple, look at the tabernacle, look at all the things that God did in the Old Testament. Look at the way that he blessed artisans in making things that were, that were reflective of God's glory, reflective of God's, of God's majesty and all that stuff. But the, but the problem became is when you venerated those things, when you worshiped those things, when they became kind of rabbit foot objects that, that had some sort of magical power or something that if you put it in the room, put it in the house or, or put it anywhere that it was going to be this magical thing that God was working through this particular thing that you made by hands. That is the one thing that you have to be very, very careful of because there are many artists in our world that, that feel that they're doing something wrong when they create something that is a, an act of worship for them. Music is the very same thing. We hear that all the time. You know, music, music, you know, how many music is the most subjective thing that we participate as a, as, as a church. You know, everybody, you know, for, for, for the few of us that are in this room, every one of us has a different idea about what worship should look like. That's the reality. In fact, I'm surprised that we can even get a group of people in the same room singing the same song because we're so subjective about what it is that we believe. The two most subjective things that we do in worship is prayer and music. Those are the two most subjective, and every one of us have an opinion about how those should work. And that's just the reality. And yet, and yet the, reality, the truth is that God's given us tremendous freedom when it comes to this thing called the arts and being creative and being able to express ourselves in order to bring honor and glory to God but it's when the style becomes the the absolute when the preference becomes more than the word of God it's, you, you know what I'm saying when that starts taking veneration and and worship and, and all, all of that, that's when we start moving into a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous place. And we have to be very, very careful, you know. Because God has the right to the definition of his image. God has the right to define it. And that's what he's talking about here, you know. Isn't it interesting, I, you know, J.S. Bach... You know, if you, if, you, if, you, if you love classical music as I do, Bach, you know, said this, All music should have no other end and aim than the glory of God and the soul's refreshment. I love that. And the soul's refreshment. Where this is not remembered, there is no real music but only devilish hubbub. <laughs> I want to know what hubbub is. <laughs> this is Bach. And he headed every one of his compositions. You know, anything about Bach, all of his compositions began with Jesus Juva, which means Jesus help me. 
And he ended them in SDG, which is sola del gratia, which means to God alone be praised. That's the way, those were the bookends of everything that he put together. And here's, here's where, where this thing really comes, comes to life. We do not, we do not attempt to reduce, manage, or localize God in any way. This is what he's talking about. You know, how many times have we talked, don't put God in a box? How many times have we, have we, have we heard that? How many times have we, we want to make God this manageable thing? We want to make God this thing that's easily localized. We want to say, you know, um, how many of us have say, you know, God appears in the church, but when I go out to work on Monday to Friday, God's not there? How many of us have that kind of sense when it is? And, or, or we try to reduce God to manageable pieces. We try to say, you know, God only acts in this way and God only does this and and, and, and we do all kinds of things. But God, God says the minute you, try, you, you build an idol or anything that, that it attempts to reduce me, to, to manage me into little pieces, to localize me in any kind of way, that is absolutely wrong. God is much bigger than we can hope or imagine. God has given enough of his revelation to us to have a clear path about how to move forward, a clear path of what, how to worship, a clear path of what it means to be in a relationship with God. But we all know that there are times in our lives where God is much more than we can ever possibly get our head around. Possibly get our head around. That no likeness on any part of the planet can match the likeness of God. Okay, here, here's, uh, here's the next part. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. These two commandments come with a warning. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Now, what are we, what are we going to do with this passage? Okay? I think we're done. <laughs> what are we going to do with this passage? Now, there, there are many that are going to argue these commandments are specifically for the nation of, of Israel. Um, they don't really apply to us. Um, and, you know, th- that may be true. But here's what, here's, what I, here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. And, and again, we don't have a whole lot of time to deal with this. Here's what I do know. We all, we all are very well aware of, of generational sin. Right? We've all experienced generational sin. And we know the reality of generational sin. And, you know, there's some of you here who, who have been hurt by a father, a mother, a, you know, grandparents, you know, whatever. The reality is that general, generational sin exists. Okay? It may not be fair. It, it, it may not um, be helpful. It may not, um, you know, uh, be understandable. It may be difficult. All those kinds of things. But here's what I do know. I know that it's true. That as a pastor, I've seen it time and time and time and time again. That generational sin exists. That however you want to see this passage, the reality is 
is there are things that happen in our lives that we are affected because of other people and this whole generational thing that happens time and time again. It's hurtful. It's difficult. But the reality is, is it's true. It exists. So what God says here, it's absolutely established from history and from reality. But what is also true is in the same way, families that are, that are faithful over the long term, they're generally speaking, there is blessing that God brings into their lives and blessing into those families. That how we live our lives with no other gods, that we don't, you know, no other idols, when we honor this, that God, in fact, does lavish love generation after generation after generation after generation. So, you know, what, what these two commandments, what these two commandments ask is, do you make God the centerpiece of your life? Is God the centerpiece of your life without equal and without competition? That God is absolutely unique in, in your life. Do you, do you make God the centerpiece of your life? And if you put God in the center, everything works from there. If you leave God to the edges, if you leave God to only certain parts of the week, if you leave God um, you know, in only certain circumstances or situations in your life, you're going you're gonna to struggle. You're going to have difficulty. You're going to have, you know, it's not, it's not going to be a full embrace of what God is talking about here. Do you, do you make God the centerpiece of your life? And put them in the middle of everything you do. Be it in your family, be it in your relationships, be it in your work, be it, be it in everything that, you, that you, you establish. Is God the centerpiece of your life? You see, what the Ten Commandments do also is encourage a life of purity. We don't think of it as, as purity in, in many ways. But when you look at the purity laws of the Old Testament, you know, um, the Ten Commandments reflect that. Do you, have, do you have in your life clean hands? Do you have a clean mind? Do you have a clean heart? Do you have a clean conscience? Do you have a clean relationship with the people that you are involved with? Do you have a clean relationship with God? The Ten Commandments express this cleanliness. And do you make God the centerpiece of your entire life. You know, there's some that would say that why are we bothering with the Ten Commandments? Because they no longer apply. But here's the thing. Jesus affirmed the Ten Commandments. That Jesus said that no jot or tittle from, from the Old Testament law was going to evaporate. That he was going to become the fulfillment of it. So as we worship Jesus, we implicitly worship and follow the Ten Commandments. That Jesus affirmed every single last one of them. Even the Sabbath, he affirmed it as a, as a rest for believers. That was a present reality for us today. Jesus fulfills all Ten Commandments and embodies them. Notice what Paul says in Galatians 3.24. Let me put it another way, Paul writes. The law was our guardian and our teacher to lead us until Christ came. So now, through faith in Christ, we are made right with God. So do you make God the centerpiece of your life? Listen, I, uh, I read back 
um, a number of years ago that somebody figured out how many commandments there, how many laws have been made around the world in order to, in order to um, follow these Ten Commandments. And somebody figured out that around the world there are 35 million laws to follow the Ten Commandments. So my question to you is, <laughs> do you make God the centerpiece of your life? You see, when you don't make God the centerpiece of your life, you need other laws to help guard people, guard relationships, guard everything in our culture. But if you make God the centerpiece of your life, the rest just fall into place. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the conclusion of the series and Ten Commandments and just the way that they frame the character and the nature of God. Thank you that um, so many cultures have been built upon these commandments. So many nations have made them part of their democracy and their lifeblood. And yet as believers, sometimes we forget that they really do portray the character and nature of Jesus as well. So Lord, may we be encouraged to make you the centerpiece of our life that we do not just use you when convenient or place you to the side of our lives or only engage in certain days of the week. But we thank you that through Jesus, the law is fulfilled. And through him, we honor what these Ten Commandments reflect. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.